Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Burned by Books, a podcast for people stricken with what the Japanese call sundoku, or the acquiring of towers of reading material that you will never get to. We are here to help. I'm your host, Chris Holmes. I have a marvelous interview with Hermione Hobie, whose new novel, Virtue, is out today. If you don't already know Hermione from her knockout debut, Neon in Daylight, or her frequent work for The Guardian and The New Yorker, among others, then you're in for a real treat. What a fabulous writer, an equally wonderful person. Before I get to the interview, I wanted to take a moment to address what is happening with COVID in the United States right now. As this podcast was begun as a way for me to preserve some sanity during the worst of the COVID epidemic, I feel compelled to place a historical marker at this moment when the brief period of hopefulness seems soon to be clouded over by a new round of infections, fear, and death. Only this time, it will be entirely of our making. We have a glut of vaccine, the world's riches of the most desperately needed scientific material. Had we rallied around the miracle that happened here and around the world— the production of the massively effective and wholly safe vaccine against COVID, we might have vaccinated every adult by the fall. The surging Delta variant that is running like wildfire through the world might not have found purchase here. But a brief look at our national infection rates show a different story. The initial surges of vaccinations have dwindled, most especially in red states, where the constant stream of lies about the risks and an unfathomable identification with the freedom in the choice to remain unvaccinated. Most recently and viciously, Tennessee has stopped promoting any vaccine and will no longer even perform the basic due diligence of reminding those with the first shot to get a second. The result is predictable and horrifying. The three and 4,000 cases daily we were seeing in June are now ready to once again crest 20,000. This is a particularly American self-destruction and a colossal failure of the state's rights experiment, where the malpractice of one state will end up killing many in the states who have followed scientific guidance and who, for the time being, have markedly lower rates of infection. For anyone who looks closely at the unique gun problem in our country, this devil's bargain, the lives of tens of thousands of innocent people traded for an individual's right to own and carry a deadly weapon, looks not unlike our own current predicament with COVID. I have, for nearly a decade, offered a class for first-year students at the college where I teach on gun violence in the U.S., And perhaps the most shocking and illuminating fact for my students is that the U.S., when compared to other affluent countries, is not appreciably more violent. Rates of domestic 
abuse, assault, and robbery are equivalent to places like the UK and Germany. What is monumentally different is that the rate of fatality in crimes committed here is so much higher. Our crime is simply much, much more deadly. That differential can be tracked as a causation between the number of unregulated guns that circulate in our country and the rates of crime that end in death, which almost always involve a gun. Despite our regular confrontation with mass murder by gun occurring now many times per month every year, we would prefer to maintain the illusion that an individual's freedom to own a gun is more valuable to the common good than the lives of 40 to 45,000 people who die from gun violence every year. If you're looking for an explanation as to why 30-odd percent of the country is unlikely to get vaccinated, even when their families' lives and their own lives are in direct jeopardy, follow the history of the gun in the U.S. Why talk about this on a books podcast? What's the point? What's a good outcome? Well, in a time of falsehood and artifice, fiction and poetry tell the truth. The writers I've had on this program are truth-tellers, no matter the politics of the telling. It is as direct as Valjina Mort writing poetry to speak against the propaganda behind the anti-democratic government violence in Belarus and to mourn those lost or imprisoned in the struggle against it. Or Alia Trabuco-Zaran, who refuses to let the Pinochet regime be softened as a new generation takes stock of his heinous crimes. And it is Alexandra Chang facing micro and macro aggressions against Asian Americans head-on in her fiction about a writer's life. Rebecca Mackay found there was no great history of AIDS in Chicago, and so her novel gave life to history and made it no less true. Hermione Hobie's novel is as clear-eyed about our present moment as anything you'll find in long or short-form news, and Ruman Alam dramatized climate disaster in a novel about class and racial hatreds that structure American life. And I could go on and on. So where do we look for truth? Maybe art can cut through. One can only hope. Welcome back to Burn by Books. What a pleasure it is to welcome Hermione Hobie to the podcast. Hermione is the author of two novels, Neon and Daylight, which was a two-time New York Times Editor's Choice novel, and Virtue, which will be published July 20th with the wonderful Riverhead Books. Hermione grew up in Bromley in South London and graduated from the University of Cambridge. After working on The Observer's New Review, she moved to New York in 2010 and then subsequently relocated to Colorado. She has written for The Guardian, The New Yorker, The New York Times, Harper's, and others. And not for nothing, she has been photographed hanging out with Taylor Swift after an interview <laughs> for The Guardian. Her new novel, Virtue, follows the post-university life of Luca, a 20-something with Dartmouth and Oxford degrees working as an intern at a posh New York City literary magazine. Handsome and rudderless, Luca falls into the ken of a high-profile society couple who are artists with children from previous marriages as well as from their own. 
Paula and Jason are beautiful and talented, known and settled in the art scene of the city. They lead enviable lives and seem both fully in love with one another and engaged in the world. The American tragedy of the election of Donald Trump and the subsequent acts of resistance drive Luca to spend a summer of detached glories with the artist couple in their main summer home, where he discovers that their seeming perfection is a much-crafted illusion. During this visitation-slash-invasion into a couple's life, Luca's mind returns regularly to his fellow intern, the brilliant and politically committed Zara whose dedication to the newly evolving struggle for black lives makes her both the object of his desire and curiosity, and the antithesis of everything he yearns for in the lives of Paula and Jason. The novel is encyclopedically contemporary in its vision of America. Little of the past five years escapes Hermione's critical gaze. The dark magic of the novel is that we are lulled into thinking that virtue is on the horizon, and that at least one of the characters to whom we are connected to can match the moment of crisis in the nation and world with virtue. The reality is in fact much too complicated for something as black and white as this, and when one character does indeed hold to its rigid standards, the consequences are heavy indeed. The resulting novel is a mesmerizing, beautifully imagined song for our difficult and fragile moment. There is great uncertainty, problematic desire, and the quest to be understood as meaningful. The book arrives with blurbs from no less than Gia Tolentino, Rachel Kushner, Leslie Jameson, and Joseph O'Neill. I have no doubt that virtue will be on your must-reads for the summer. Welcome, Hermione Hobie. Thank you so much, Chris. I feel um, sort of shaken in a good way by that incredibly generous and intelligent introduction. Thank you. I'm just trying to recover myself. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I am so glad you're here. And I would love, uh, if you would, for you to read from the beginning of the novel to set set us with the scene and sound. Of course. Um, I will not sound like a 22-year-old um, American man, but um, Thank goodness. here he is. <laughs> There's something kind of gratifying about a really bad birthday. Toward the garish end of 2016, the year our idols died, I turned 23 alone, failing to read a book in the dim, eggy light of a deserted Chinatown bar. I convinced myself that this stoically miserable total non-event was preferable to drinks with a few people mustering faint cries of happy birthday or God forbid trying to sing the song always too slow, always going on longer than anyone wanted, particularly when groaning toward that final protracted lift on the first syllable of the penultimate birthday. I'd hoped that being alone might feel sort of heroic or at least dignified or at least grown up. It wasn't any of these things. It was the weekend before Thanksgiving, the end of the nothing month of November, and I remember raininess, a vague and unremitting overlay of pathetic fallacy. The sky had a passive-aggressive quality, bruised clouds withholding their light, while telling you they were fine not to worry about them, they knew you didn't really care anyway. Ahead lay the grotesquerie of the reality star, who'd soon be eating McDonald's and watching TV in the White House. It was a bad joke in the worst taste. The incoming president was the executive producer of the America Show, 
barreling faster toward the series finale, and the ratings would be great. Later, Zara would say in her deadly deadpan that the good ones had all pieced out because they knew what was coming. Prince, Bowie, Muhammad Ali. Names now, more than a decade later, half forgotten in a world too tyrannized by the present to have time for history. Should I stop there? That's perfect. Thank you so much. Um, you're so right about happy birthday, by the way. <laughs> Whether that's just your uh, opinion or just Luca's, I don't know, but I feel um, in in concert with that. Um, so uh, I love the opening of, of this novel, and it's it's wonderful to hear you read it. Um, and in particular, there's a, a high-low vacillation there that's evocative of the style of the book as a whole. Um, and the novel can be vulgar in the oldest sense of being of the body, while equally taking lyric turns at capturing the sweep of our contemporary moment. Were you purposeful with those swings in tone and voice and diction um, as you were writing the novel, or did it come more naturally as the narrative voice best suited to what was going on inside Luca? Um, well, first, I'm, I'm so glad you picked up on that. That's really gratifying. So thank you. Um, and my answer is going to be, I guess, a bit of a, a sort of, uh, you know, tedious fudge and a bit of both is the, <laughs> the honest answer. Um, so yes, uh, you know, that's the way I want to write. Um, that seems like the most dynamic and truthful way to write. I want the high and the low. I want a kind of you know, an electric mix of it, if possible. Mm -hmm. um, but it also seemed suited to Luca in that he is someone whose self has formed in large part through books from a different time. You know, he's kind of fashioned his self-image on the kind of great American novels that we now regard with some suspicion in that they are <laughs> they are mostly about um young men and masculinity. And so, you know, a little later, actually, just a few pages on from this, um, Zara kind of teases him about talking like an old guy out of a book. Mm -hmm. So there is this, in one sense, he's sort of, um, you know, old fashioned, but he is also very much, you know, a 20, well, I guess he's 23, a 23 year old guy in, um, in 2017. Um, and part of that world too. Um, but I suppose the voice, I wanted the voice to be even more complicated by the fact that this is a, uh, you know, a retrospective narrative. So in a sense, we have him both, you know, both 22 or oh, 23, sorry, I keep getting his age wrong, <laughs> both 23 and um, 33, 34, you know, he's recollecting this time. And I wanted the 20-something the Luca to actually sound kind of more old-fashioned because he's, you know, a little pretentious. Oh, that's Whereas interesting. Whereas the, <laughs> the older Luca uh, is sort of more contemporary and youthful sounding. So I wanted both, um, you know, I wanted the mix of those two Lucas. Um, and I did feel that this was kind of a way of having my cake and eating it too, in that this is a first-person narrative but there's something, I hope, of the, you know, something of the power of um, a third person, you know, mm -hmm. something more authorial, because it's author, it's uh, Luca authoring himself, you know, it's him as a 30 something writing himself, 
uh, as a 20-something. Yeah, as I was um, uh, thinking about questions, I had to sort of stop myself and recall that it was a first-person narrative, because in many ways, it has more of a um, free and direct discourse feel, because there's, you know, Luca kind of self-censoring, commenting, um, reimagining um, that that history. It's recent history, but history nonetheless. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, there's early sections of the novel are set amongst a, a gaggle of high achieving interns at a prestige magazine in New York City. This is followed by an escape to the idols of Maine at a summer house. How mm -hmm. did you decide on these two pretty opposite American landscapes as your geographies? Mm. Um, I suppose... Whenever um, someone says, how did you choose or how did you decide? And I really don't mean to dodge this question, mm -hmm. but I think, well, I didn't really choose. I didn't really decide. You know? <laughs> they just I went mean, there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess, um, you know, intentionality is often um, kind of retroactive. <laughs> as in, you know, the, the first <laughs> stages of writing are, for me, I have to turn off the analytical and the self-censoring and follow intuition. And then, I mean, this is probably a, you know, woefully inefficient way of writing a novel. But then uh, I switch on the, you know, the more analytical part and shape things. Um, so I guess... Um, I mean, the, you know, sort of topographically, those those places are different, the main coastline and um, the, um, you know, sort of downtown Manhattan and the publishing world. But in a way, I, I felt like the same sensibilities were kind of moving through them in mm. that, you know, Jason and Paula's house is in this little village in Maine. But they have, or rather, Paula has um, encouraged a lot of her friends to get summer houses there. So it's almost like, you know, this kind of um, <laughs> hegemony of, uh, you know, New York uh, living. Um, well, there's that um, there's that Bush um, uh, compound, the former president's compound somewhere in, in Maine, which I'm oh, sure. Geez. I didn't even know that. Yeah, wow. it, uh, I kept having flashes. I think it's in Kennebunkport, which is southern right. southern Maine. But um, yeah, I had flashes of that, what it was probably like um, based on what I had seen pictures of the Bush camp compound. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, I was kind of tickled um, that, that, you know, there is a place in Maine called Brooklyn, L-A-N, hmm. and filled, it seems, in large part with uh, people from Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> who just decided, let's just embrace the cliche of who and, and what we are as fully as possible. <laughs> right, right. Phonetic consonants is, um, you know, that's the way to live. You just follow <laughs> Follow the phonetics. I don't know. <laughs> That's what they say. Uh, so I was I was reading um, the insides of uh, Luca's older and younger mind. Um, I did wonder whether you had any misgivings or second guessing yourself about your ability to get inside the head of an American man. You know, perhaps I should have, <laughs> but I did not. Um, I mean, the novel began with his voice, just a very strong sense of his voice in my head, unignorable. And I had that really welcome, um, you know, delusion of feeling as though I were just dictating, um, mm -hmm. particularly at the beginning. 
which isn't to say that then, you know, I didn't need years and years of refining and revising. Um, but he, he just sort of presented himself to me. And, um, you know, I think gender is perhaps an easier thing to imagine than other kinds of difference. Um, I mean, forgive me, this is going to be a little vulgar, quite literally of the body, but Mm -hmm. I found it much harder to, you know, I'm a lifelong vegetarian and mostly vegan. I found it much harder to embody a person eating a Whopper than to embody a person with a penis masturbating, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, One of those things, uh, yeah, there was like a real block. It was like, okay, this is my biggest challenge to imagine eating and enjoying some dead cow um so that you know that particular moment was way harder than i don't know imagining boners or you know <laughs> just what it is to be i have to say your your saying the word does not convince me of the <laughs> of, of, of <laughs> that being within your lexicon but um <laughs> the um uh, there is that moment where he's describing kind of the pleasure and self-disgust of eating the the whopper on the right. the roadside stop right. um, that he has, and I thought that it was very true to my own experience of you know <laughs> it's not necessarily one's plan to eat that, but then when when offered that choice, you do go to the like pleasure and disgust of those roadside places. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also, you know, just to write as a man just felt very liberating. And I don't even mean that necessarily in a political way, but more, I knew that no one would mistake me for a 23 year old guy from Broomfield, Colorado. And that just gave things a sense of, I don't know, momentum and kind of purity, you know, I felt exempt. There was going to be no biographical confusion, Mm -hmm. um, no biographical readings here. And that felt really wonderful. Yeah. And and that's interesting because so many of the interviews I've I've done so far on the podcast have had significant sections where talk we were talking through the anxieties of that biographical overlap and what it meant to be either wanting to write autofiction or wanting to be very separate from that category um and so i do i see what you're saying about the um a a freedom and a a path ahead that doesn't have those particular anxieties Mm, yeah yeah i i'm a you know, hugely enthusiastic reader of good autofiction. And mm-hmm. I think there is a lot of good autofiction. Um, I have also felt, you know, particularly in recent years, a kind of hunger for the novel in which, for the kind of novel in which the world um, and intimate lives are imbricated. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I mean, there are so many novels I've loved, you know, recent contemporary novels that don't do that. So I don't mean to be, you know, throwing shade at anyone. No, no. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, I have just felt a real appetite for, um, you know, the sorts of books in which we have a sense of, well, yeah, to use, I guess, Luca's phrase, which is a bit uh, cringe of me, but the small world and the large world, you mm. know, how these, um, the kind of macro forces at play in America and beyond, um, cannot be separated from um, individuals' lives and, um, you know, their intersubjectivities too. 
Um, absolutely. Um, I remember hearing Jonathan Safran for read from Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close at the Harvard Bookstore in 2005 and thinking that it was equal parts brave and foolish to attempt to gain a vantage on the natural national tragedy of 9-11 when it was still so fully occupying our present. Virtue likewise braves the contemporary, but with even less of a gap in the time for reflection. What was it like to try and situate the novel in our precise zeitgeist? Trump, the Women's March, BLM movement, Charlottesville, even as that zeitgeist was morphing under your feet? It's a wonderful question. The short answer is, um, yeah, really, really hard. <laughs> but let me try and give you something, um, well, uh, a longer answer. Um, I guess my longer answer is, um, I think we, and I have been guilty of this, we have... Um, a sort of naive belief that whatever narrative solidifies is uh, the true historical narrative. And, um, you know, particularly in terms of racial politics, this has been, you know, I've welcomed the interrogating and dismantling of, of such a notion. But I think, you know, the, the reason people think it's hard to write about recent events is that we haven't processed them. We don't know what they are yet. Mm, and that's yeah. true. But I also think we don't know what they are 10 years later or 20 years or 30 years we never really know what they are it's just that our sense of what they are the meaning we've ascribed them changes and shifts and so in a way uh you know a take one year on and i'm sorry to use um such a crude term maybe i don't mean take an interpretation um is perhaps just as valid as one that comes 10 years later because both of those are you know um <laughs> rife with subjectivity and fallible in different ways um that's right but you know all that's to say it it, it certainly was a um uh, a, an extremely difficult thing to be trying to get some sense of traction um when as you say the ground was shifting and things are changing and not only changing but at such an accelerated rate i mean i feel like particularly under the last president, and forgive me, I find it hard to say his name out loud. Mm, um, yeah. as, you, as you know, there's no problem with saying Boner or whatever, but um, <laughs> there are some vulgarities that I feel cannot be uttered on your blessed podcast. Um, uh, yeah, you know, those years, the, the news was just a, at warp speed. Um, there was a, a, a relentlessness, and so... It was, I mean, my friend, um, a great writer and a great guy, David Bergerard, had a, a tweet that went viral um, that was something along the lines of uh, future historians will be asked to say uh, which, I don't know, uh, which quarter or which period of um, 2016, I think they specialized in, or maybe it was 2020. Anyway, his point was, you know, there is there has just been so much happening. And I have wondered yeah. how we will historicize, you know, which bits of the uh, previous administration will kids be taught um what will what will solidify and endure yeah and the and what will get lost and and in a way the the Absolutely. fact that you do grab up both the the sort of the the literal events but also the like sensations of it and the moments of outrage and horror and um wanting to flee and and those kind of um the the feelings and the affects of the time are something that I think literature is so important for capturing. 
Oh, I completely agree, Chris. Yes, <laughs> you're singing to the choir. That <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's why, you know, that's one of the myriad reasons we we need novels um, and why I, you know, believe wholeheartedly in literature. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a zealot in that regard. <laughs> Me too. Uh, and I... <laughs> And I think of um, Ali Smith, who's produced one of the great experiments with hyper contemporaneity in her seasonal quartet as someone who is trying to uh, uh, depict the very events unfolding around her um, as she writes them. Did you see or do you see virtue as participating in this kind of hyper um, contemporaneity? Or do you simply think that we're called to at this moment, um, write and produce art that is a about our absolute moment? Mm, um. I I should say I, I hear wonderful things about this quartet, and I'm ashamed to say I haven't read it, which is um, something I must correct. Um, I think you I, suppose, I think you would love it, um, so I yeah, do I do yeah. recommend it. I will put it on the list. Yeah, <laughs> add it to the pile. Huh, I guess I I hadn't thought of myself as being part of that project, and I know again a book I hear good things about that I haven't read. Olivia Lang's Crudo seems to be oh, working yeah. in that vein. As Absolutely. Well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think I'm wary of issuing any kind of statement along the lines of, you know, this is what a writer's duty is. This is what a writer should do. I certainly felt it was like what I had to do um, and, and what I wanted to do. Um, I, I think I'm just, I'm drawn to our present and um, I'm in awe of people who write historical novels. Um, I wouldn't know how to do that. I feel... Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I tend to feel seized by the present. Um, and I suppose, you know, writing fiction is sort of the most honest, um, and the hardest way, um, I have of like being in the world and living in the world mm -hmm. and, um, being awake. It, that one of the things that you, that you sort of grab up in that, um, contemporary gaze is the women's march. Uh, and this is the second recent novel that I've read that sort of takes it on directly. And, and frankly, in, in both, it doesn't come off in a terribly good light, or at least, um, not a, an uncomplicated light. Did it feel like you were sacrificing a totem of liberalism to complicate this now iconic moment of resistance? Um, I imagine the first novel is uh, Lauren Euler's um, brilliant skewering. Is, is that you right? are correct? You are right. very correct. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the the phrase you use, sacrificing a totem of liberalism, it's is stirring, and so I want to say yes. God damn it, that's what I was doing. It sounds um, valiant and uh, sort of ruthless. Um, one thing. One thing I was thinking a lot while writing this novel was the question of taste um, and how that is a uh, politically tricky thing, as mm. in so much of the outrage over the previous president um, was to do with his vulgarity. You know, mm -hmm. he looked gross. He was trashy. He was orange. He, uh, you know, was like nouveau riche and clearly had terrible taste. And of course, those were not his greatest crimes, you know? <laughs> um, so you uh, say. That, <laughs> right. That wasn't the biggest problem. Um, and so I think, and this was, you know, this was actually something I talked um, uh, quite a lot 
um, to my partner, Ben, about. And so I think I, you know, the, the thing that I found so gross about the Women's March were those stupid, ugly hats. And this is very <laughs> low of me because I then, you know, I'm, it's like, this isn't about taste. Um, you you're going to get, know? you're going to get hate mail now, Hermione. I have to. <laughs> oh, God. But I, um, you know, it's like, who cares? But I think, let me, let me try and, uh, climb out of this hole i've just dug myself um the hats who cares but it, they are a problem if all people care about is the hats and mm -hmm. you know there's just a kind of self-congratulation on like knitting the hat and taking your selfie and going on the march but you don't actually do anything and this isn't to say i don't believe um in protest i think protest is beautiful and a valid <laughs> political weapon. I have just sensed that, you know, at this time of um, kind of rabid and relentless social media and personal branding and all these other, you know, omnipresent evils, it is easy for our politics to take on the quality of um, sort of sensationalism and um, lookism. Um, it's about looking good and, uh, I think it's easy then for people to kind of let themselves off the hook. You know, if they go on the march and take a picture, then whatever, they can, you know, not actually engage with their own community or, you know, do anything else. So I guess I feel ambivalent about the Women's March. I found it very stirring at the time. I remember actually the day of it, I'd gone to uh, D.C. to march and then I was really sick. So I, I watched it like lying on a sofa on my laptop um but i have you know, i have very vivid memories of of just seeing these scenes unfold mm -hmm. um, and i thought i did find it very moving at the time um it i don't know what it did you know mm. uh, and it's very hard with all these things to you know, find the metrics, like, how would we know exactly what it did? Um, you know, how, how exactly to track the efficacy of, um, of marches and other forms of protest? Um, they don't sort of neatly produce better policy in some kind of, you know, clear, traceable, direct line. Yeah, it's hard to aggregate their, their exactly. value. Yeah. Um, and it will be, you know, historians who sort of take apart um what the the kind of minutiae of its value is or whether it had a um a, a different role in changing the um again the sort of sensation of the moment um but while we're on the subject i i really think of your novel as taking a steel-toed boot to the soft bits of white liberalism particularly <laughs> the performativity of it which i think you've just addressed with the um with the pink hats um paula and jason are each in their own way a version of the failure of this kind of liberalism in Paula's case, she believes her art can speak to the moment in a way that will be more meaningful than getting angry at the state of things, while Jason fumes at injustice but is mostly impotent in acting out the intensity of his feelings. Can you talk a little bit about how these two characters came into focus for you um, and how the failure of liberalism to hold tightly to any virtue became a pathos for the novel? Absolutely. Um... First, it 
it just it's um I mean, I don't mean to flatter you, Chris, but it is really wonderful to hear you use that phrase, you know, the failure of liberalism as a kind of, uh, well, to, yeah, to hold tightly to virtue is the pathos of the novel. Um, I I agree with that. I would also say, though, that I I love these two. I mm. love Jason. Mm-hmm. Um, I love all the characters. Um, and I I do think there is a, there's certainly a harshness in the novel. I was certainly feeling a great deal of anger, as I'm sure, you know, most people in America were for, <laughs> for varying reasons. Um, but I, I really don't blame these two. And I had this sense of them as being, you know, good and fallible people. Um, I, I have, yeah, I have sympathy with Paula and she's like, well, I'm an artist. I'm not an organizer. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I'm not going to run for office. That's just not who she is. And I have sympathy for Jason too, when he's feeling rage and a kind of guilt over his, you know, pleasant, wealthy lifestyle, which is down in large part to his wife. Um, and, you know, as a, as the feminist he is, he can't really acknowledge that um, because, politically and intellectually he's cool with his wife Mm -hmm. you know earning or having more money than he is but there is still you know as with all of us a kind of atavistic part that we're less inclined to examine or um sort of give credence to um so um i mean i guess we're, we're talking about two different things the failure of liberalism and the kind of utility of art mm-hmm. and in terms of the latter um i I absolutely believe um, in the the kind of necessity of art, not just the utility. And I, I mean, I guess the term utility is, uh, you know, the wrong one. Like, that's the point. It's, <laughs> it's not about utility. Um, I was, you know, recently um, with the, the Gaza conflict, I was thinking, I was thinking about social media, as I tend to do. And I was like, isn't it? kind of crass and disgusting i think i'd taken like a cute picture of our cat or something i was like isn't it totally tone deaf to post a picture of my cat while this is happening and and then i kind of thought you know the whole point of not being bombed and (laughs) having rights and uh, not living in a war zone and and all the rest is so one can take pleasure in one's cat or whatever you know Mm -hmm. fill in that gap and i think the same is true of art it's like yes of course you know, our basic human needs are more important than whatever, going to the opera. But the point of being alive is, um, you know, the point of having a good life in a good society is that there is then room to be human in the fullest way. And being human in the fullest way means, to my mind, at least, art. Um, So I really forgive Jason and Paula. And it has been interesting, actually, you know, with the few friends who've read it to receive their very different reactions to these characters. And, you know, some people just find them vile and despicable and others just kind of, you know, swept up in their romance. And I think they're I think they're very much both. I I mean, you you sort of both see exactly why um, Luca is sort of drawn into the the whirlpool of their energy and um, their artistic production and their intellectualism and their beauty. They're just sort of physical and ephemeral beauty. And at the same time, like I felt a 
kind of sort of righteous anger at them at at many times during the novel absolutely yeah yeah. And, and uh, since we're on the the topic of of art and its necessity, while not being utilitarian, um, there are real moments where I wondered um, what your thoughts were on on the value of of art in times of precarity. And at times, yeah. it seemed that you were saying, "Well, the novel is saying," but perhaps you are also saying that art can be really fraudulent and it can skim along the surface of commercial value and hipness Mm -hmm. and fail Mm -hmm. all the, all the other big things that we want it to do. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I, I remember um, my friend, Christine Smallwood, who by the way, has just written an excellent novel, which I wholeheartedly recommend. She wrote a piece years and years ago about um, the kind of sudden ubiquity of like, tote bags and stuff that said I love books and I love reading (laughs) she had this really elegant phrase the curiously undifferentiated flavor and I just love that phrase Mm. and I think yeah I it's good right it's like yeah I believe in art but when I say that I mean I believe in good art and (laughs) I don't you know like most art unfortunately is bad and you know most novels are bad and the ones that are good are extraordinarily one you know they're sacred things and um they're my reason for staying alive um and i hope other people's reasons for staying alive as well so i absolutely believe in art but um yeah there's a lot of bad art Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know in in every um in every medium Um, that's why it was important that i i wanted to have that scene in which luca he goes uptown um i don't name them as site wombles but i think it's it's not gonna destroy anything to say that's what they are he goes see and sees these site wombly paintings and i wanted him to have you know a genuinely pure rhapsodic meaningful response to these extraordinary paintings um so uh, yeah it was really important that that scene was in the book um but also you know this is I mean, there's something sort of self-evident, I hope, in that, sure, this is a novel preoccupied with, um, you know, this question of art, its decadence or its validity. But it's a novel that I wrote, and it took a long time to write. <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, that, that's your proof. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I, I believe in the novel. I you've mean, committed. committed. You've you've, committed. you've put put it on on the page. Yeah, I don't mean to be saying you know this is good art, and I believe in the good art of my novel, but I believe in the novel as form, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. I committed, indeed. <laughs> um, you know, Jason and Paula are are sort of fabulously sexy, uh, and and mm-hmm. the fact that you've given the sort of sexual energy and center of the novel to to people in their late forties, um, I think, is actually unfortunately quite a rarity. Um, mm-hmm. And I wondered, were you wanting to kind of play with the stereotypes of of age and sexuality, which you know so often you know everything is given given to the young um to the 20s and and 30s and then everything else is seen as neutered and um and yeah. interesting but not for um reasons of of sexuality sure yeah i think um i'm, I'm <laughs> maybe i'm gonna sound like luca now but i think there's nothing sexier than a sexy woman in her 40s mm. i mean i do think um you know I mean, to me, sexiness is so much about um, 
that person's um, self-possession and self-knowledge and power. And, you know, that's, that's hard to come by and it tends to take some decades. So, mm-hmm. you know, I guess I hadn't thought about, um, I don't know, like countering a stereotype or whatever, speaking up for the sexiness of the, <laughs> <laughs> the older lady. But, you know, my, I mean, my life, but my life is full of very sexy people in their 40s. So, um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you find them sexy. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and I think that, um, you know, for to have a 20-somethings gaze um, be in that direction, I found, I found powerful. And, and I agree that it is their, um, their self-possession and their confidence and the years of working through kind of hard things to learn about yourself sure. that makes sure. them, it, them interesting. Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. I mean, and not to kind of <laughs> throw the two of them under the bus, but I would say it is also, and this is the, you know, the queasy, tricky, like icky kind of thing that I wanted to try and write about. It is, it is all that. It is all those um, good, undeniable things. It is also their wealth, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, yes. one, it's easier to be self-possessed and carefree and confident when you've got money. And this is a very distasteful truth. Um, mm-hmm. So I wanted Luca to be anxious about, you know, what is the difference between beauty and just money? Um, there's one moment where he's in their house, in their Brooklyn house, and he's kind of staring at these fancy candles, which are, you know, filling the air with this gorgeous scent. And, you know, he's kind of wondering, is this beauty or is this just having the money to spend on really posh expensive candles and i'm sure uh people will know which candles i'm talking about (laughs) which i do i also love them um but you know it's a kind of it's a ridiculous thing yeah the Um, the economics of what gets to gets to stand in for sexy is um it's, it's never with it's never not followed by the 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 flip side of the coin being that um you know the inequalities that allowed it to to be a symbol of sexiness uh it's it's always there exactly exactly yeah so nearly everyone in the novel of consequence is either an artist or art curious um and you have these wonderfully beautiful smart um interns at what's called the new old world magazine um which includes luca um and i wondered if um your experience with magazines had um brought any of the the sort of the feel and the the vibe of these sort of young people feeling both um utterly uh completely compelled by the excitement and the literariness and the um the chicness of working at 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 something like this magazine, which feels very much like the New Yorker, um, whether your own experiences with magazines had influenced that or whether you were sort of drawing from something more imaginary. Yeah, I guess I'd say, um, you know, I've, I've never worked at one of these magazines. Um, I've never, um, (laughs) been an intern at such a magazine. Um, but you know, they, they have been sort of part of my world just kind of socially or, or I don't know, quasi, quasi professionally. Um, but I suppose I was drawing more on the imaginary. Um, 
I guess one thing I was thinking about was um, where you, you know, where as a young person you get your sense of authority from and the way that these kind of prestige publications can present um, an authority and a kind of infallibility that, of course, is false. You know, they mm-hmm, are just mm-hmm. um, subjective and limited and, um, you know, often politically short-sighted and, you know, beholden to advertisers and readership and uh, whatever, the you know, the whims of the board and, and all that stuff. So there is no... Um, there is no fixed authority to these places. And I, which isn't to say that, you know, they aren't valuable um, and can't be of great cultural importance. But I did have a sense, um, and, you know, this is ongoing, that we are in a moment of such enormous change that all institutions are having to um, reckon with their own histories and what they're, Right. And and sort of what their point is right now, Um, because it can't be it can't be the kind of soothing self-congratulation that has possibly characterized some of these institutions, you know. Well, you show the magazine at a moment of real kind of fracture um, and it doesn't it doesn't come off particularly well. uh, Mm -hmm. And in part because that there's an aspect of its prestige that requires it to to kind of sit um, you know, dancing above the fray um, where it wants uh-huh. to be um, and uh-huh. when its own writers and thinkers kind of want to pull it down into the to the meaty fraught uh, now, it, it wants to balk at that. Right, right. I think there is, I think one, one of the great problems <laughs> I've been wrangling with um this last half decade or whatever is just that the demands like the the world of art uh makes different demands than the world of politics and civic duty and so you know i think a novel is a an amoral space um but a magazine it's a interesting entity in that it is a you know a conduit and a vessel for art but it's also potentially a political tool. And I haven't, I haven't solved this problem. You know, I don't know what a magazine should be. Um, and I, I find it a fascinating question. Um, and uh, I, I guess um, it's going to be quite amazing these next few years to see what, um, you know, these, these magazines uh become and what their mission is um yeah i wonder if if we'll recognize um whatever it is that they become as the thing that we've been living with and and kind of counting on in in some ways to sort of be literary tastemakers right right and you know when i believe in art and i don't think art i think Dogmatic art is not art, but I do think art, good art tends to be political in that it is engaging, you know, um, with the <laughs> exigencies of our world. Um, but I I don't want manifestos, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll take a manifesto in um, whatever, nonfiction form, but, um, you know, we, we need stories that are just stories too. 
No, um, novels that are, are, you know, act as manifestos are almost exclusively very, very bad. Yeah, uh, I think they're, they're just not novels. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Um, yeah. So in, in terms of your writing for magazines, you have sort of this unbelievable list of people that you've uh, interviewed and profiled over the years, contemporary writers, artists, actors, um, Toni Morrison, um, I'm making all sorts of like, you know, movements with my hands that you can't see because I find that so um, <laughs> unbelievably one. Yeah, exactly. That is the correct response. <laughs> Um, yeah. Jeffrey Eugenides, Katie Kitamura, um, Ann Patchett, the director, Patty Jenkins, actors, Natasha Leone, um, John Boyega, Jennifer Lawrence, and Mindy Kaling, and on and on. Um, I particularly recommend to everyone who's listening your profile of the South African writer, Ivan Vladislavich. Um, Thanks. <laughs> having truly made a, a really marvelous career from talking with artists of enormous fame, what makes a good interview, especially when you're talking to someone that the public believes they already know? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, well, not the fact that they're famous. That is not what makes a good interview. And I, mm -hmm. I know that's not what you were saying. I didn't mean to sound like I'm scolding you, but um, I what I've loved about doing this kind of work is um, it's the same reason I love writing novels. I just love people. <laughs> <laughs> I hopelessly love my species and I feel so greedy for them for just um, the, <laughs> you know, every inimitable person in their personhood. That to me is just like an endlessly thrilling thing. Um, what makes a good interview? <laughs> well, you're doing a very good one right now, so maybe you should answer. Um, I'm sorry, I'm being facetious. I guess, um, you know, a true curiosity and openness and then an honesty in the writing. Um, and this gets complicated when, as you say, there is a, a sense, you know, there's a kind of entrenched narrative of who that person is and yeah. what they mean and what their significance is. So I guess I've always tried to to think about that narrative as its own thing and like what purpose that might be serving, which is almost separate from the subject um, themselves. Because, you know, it's interesting too, um, you know, why it is that so-and-so has been seized as emblematic of something or other, even if they're not. Well, I'm going to make uh, you and I a T-shirt that says, I hopelessly love my species. Um, <laughs> and I feel like it will it will catch on. and. and Dog, isn't it? <clears throat> it, well, it is, but it's it's really wonderful, and I think you know, for my own kind of take on on interviewing, I I feel like if you don't have that going on, you're going to be um, incredibly boring because you're not really going to care what the person yeah. has to say about I mean, anything. I mean, I think that's that's the key thing. I really do care. I really just care about people. Um, I don't just mean the people in my life that I love, but I mean people i'm like whatever i you know go buy a coffee and i'm like who is this guy in the bodega you know it's thrilling to me mm. <laughs> human beings are thrilling to me yeah well you have a lot of um visual artists in that kind of uh, gallery of wonderful interviews and i wonder if um any of them uh influenced your depictions of artists in virtue 
I guess the the sort of artists that I were that were kind of swelling in my mind as I um, sort of built Paula or listened to Paula or you know allowed Paula to become more Paula mm. um, were people I haven't interviewed. Um, and maybe I shouldn't name them actually because I think um, I want to uh, you know preserve that space and. I know I just named the Saitwamblies and Luca going to look at the Saitwamblies. It's, <laughs> it's too late. It's too late. I've rumbled myself. Um, but the reason I um, don't, you know, explicitly name him in the book is that, uh, you know, if, you, if you've seen Saitwamblies, you have ideas about them, maybe you don't like them. If you don't know who Saitwamblie is, you might be like, oh, I'm whatever, this, this book's like, um, excluding me, you know, so I, I wanted, mm-hmm. I wanted him not to be named so that there is that space for someone to imagine, um, and, you know, make it their own. Cause that to me, I mean, not to sound like a total sap, but that to me is what is so magical about reading fiction. It is that, that dynamic between what a, what the writer is offering you and then what you bring to it, you know, yeah. so you imagine the character is, I don't know, that person you went to school with or whatever. And it becomes, so deeply personal because it is an imaginative act on your part as a reader um, as well. Yeah, and they can contain multitudes and those those many, many different artist amalgams um, can be important to the reader, um, putting them together. So I agree that, yeah. you know, too much sort of sighting of, of people and, and artists can uh, contract that ability to have an a, a full yeah. imaginative experience with it. Yeah, and, you know, that was one of the reasons I, I didn't have acknowledged. I don't have acknowledgments in the book as well. It's not because I'm not hugely grateful to a host of people um who will be receiving you know individual handwritten notes upon publication um it's more that i just don't want to break that fourth wall i don't want the interruption of real life and you know real googleable people mm-hmm. um, into this imagined world i want to preserve that so it's finally summer um it's completely beautiful here i hope it is in colorado as well um it really is oh good after a, a winter of Game of Thrones proportions. Um, can we talk about your summer reading plans and what, yeah. what do you have on your, your must-read lists? And are there forthcoming books that you had a peek at that you would recommend as well as things that are um, maybe already on shelves? Oh, sure. Always a pleasure to talk books. Um, well, I am just you know continuing the project of trying to correct my great ignorance and one of the <laughs> kunai uh, I'm trying to plug this summer um, is just a lot of Frankfurt school stuff so mm. you know in an unforgivable fun I'm just pun I'm just privately well now publicly embarrassingly deeming this my uh, Frankfurt summer school <laughs> not, not okay that's the um, second t-shirt I'm going to make uh, for you uh, <laughs> yeah cap yeah cap goes with it (laughs) um so i'm reading adorno which is just mind-blowing and staggeringly wonderful Mm. and um feels like you know lifting heavy weights and then i'm also reading willa cather which is just like a stroll um if we're continuing the exercise analogy yes it's like strolling in the park willa cather feels like children's literature and i mean that in the best way in that it's just um there's just something so soothing about it i'm also like you know, choking on these moments of really shocking racism. Mm. Um, but I don't think that's reason not to read her. 
I don't need my writers to be good. I really don't need them to be good. Um, uh, I loved Sally Rooney's forthcoming novel. Um, oh, you've already read it. Oh, oh it's so beautiful. Oh, I'm so terribly jealous. <laughs> you should be. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really wonderful. What's the um, title of it again? I forget. Beautiful World, comma, Where Are You? No mm. question mark. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. Um, and Damn just her such, genius. <laughs> really genius, just an extraordinary writer. Um, and then another, a page turner, but, um, you know, tonally um, diametric um, is Josh Cohen's brilliant, the Netanyahu's. He too is just such a crackling genius in a very different way. The so Netanyahu's, really huh? The Netanyahu's, oh, okay. yeah. Um, yeah, he's excellent. Um, oh, I have this essay collection that I hear really great things about. Um, Jesse McCarthy's Who Will Pay Reparations on My Soul, okay. um, which I hear is brilliant. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Oh, he has a um, brand new or forthcoming novel, isn't that right? He does, um, he does. yeah, with Melville House. Yeah. yeah. Um, I can read that too. Um uh, I love Miyako Kawakami, so I've got Heaven, mm-hmm. her most recent mm-hmm. novel, I as well. Um, let's see, what else? Um, oh, I also, speaking of, uh, you know, lacunae and filling them, I've only ever read Baldwin's um, nonfiction, so I'm going to read oh, wow. Giovanni's Room. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. You're, you're in yeah, for an incredible treat. Yeah. Yeah, that really does feel like quite a shameful one, actually, not having read his fiction. So seeking to correct that. <laughs> Have you read uh, Convenience Store Woman by um, Morata? No. Um, if you're a fan of um, uh, Breast and Eggs and, and yeah. Heaven, um, you know, it's it, it's quite different, but they they share some interesting sensibilities. So I, I oh, definitely great. suggest it. And it's like you it's you can sit down and read it in 45 minutes, but it's it's beautiful and startling and strange and and different than than probably a lot of things you've read recently. Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. No, I must I must put that on the list. Thank you. Oh, I'm also um, really excited about Claire uh, Sestanovich's, um, uh, what is her debut collection called? Um, Objects of Desire, I think. Okay. Um, I've really, really enjoyed her stories um, in The New Yorker, so I think that's going to be a treat. Um, yeah, I mean, probably countless other things that I will remember as soon as we get off the call but <laughs> well those sound wonderful i'm gonna i'm gonna put them right up on the on the website it, i think it's fantastic that you're using the summer for adorno i'm so sad to say that the last minute of my conversation with hermione was cut short by a strange audio bug in the system she was at the end as graceful and poised and witty as she was at the beginning of the interview And I hope that you will go to burnedbybooks.com to see the whole of her summer reading recommendations and also find a a link with which to purchase virtue from Buffalo Street Books. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for our show today. My many thanks to Hermione Hobie for a wonderful conversation and for her new novel, Out Today, Virtue. 
The next episodes will feature Brian Hall, whose new novel, The Stone Loves the World, is the big family epic that you've been waiting for, and Katie Kitamura, whose newest novel, Intimacies, is taking the literary world by storm. Until then, this has been Burned by Books. Books.